Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Popular Culture. I'm Barbara Haroon, the co-host with the amazing Rebecca Buchanan of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to the extraordinary John Jodzio about his amazing short story collection, Knockout. Welcome, John, to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here today. So, John, I wonder if we could um, begin the interview by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Sure. I am a short story writer. My latest book is Knockout. Uh, I have a couple other books out uh, previous to Knockout. Uh, The first one was If You Lived Here, You'd Already Be Home. And then I had a collection of short flash fiction uh, that also was combined with art. that came out with Paper Darts Press in 2011. Um, so I'm primarily primarily a short story writer. I've, I've started to work on a novel here in recent months. I'm based in Minneapolis, uh, so sort of Midwestern roots. Uh, and I guess that's about it for now. I things will come out, I'm sure, as we, we start this interview. Absolutely, because I, I understand you're also the winner of the Loft McKnight Fellowship. And so I'll be interested. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about that, too, later as we we continue. So let's talk about Knockout, if we could. How did this collection come together? How, like, I'm looking at the very first story here, Great Alcoholic-Owned Bed and Breakfast of the Eastern Seaboard, which is hilarious, but also (laughs) really heartfelt. And, And the things that I found myself laughing about in your work, often made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because the characters in this short story, the father, um, who is, of course, the alcoholic, the son, and the neighbors, um, were all just so well-drawn. But your work with humor and really finely wrought characters is wonderful. So I'm just wondering, can we talk a little bit about that first story, and where did that come from? Um, Sure. The first story, that was actually my proposed title for this short story collection, but I got that got vetoed and we went with Knockout, which ends up being a great title as well. That story, you know, and I think a lot of my stories sort of emanate from the first lines of, you know, that I write, I find this kernel interest you know, like a character saying something or, you know, you know, a narrator sort of spilling something out that's kind of intriguing. And then things sort of move forward slowly from there. I don't remember exactly uh, when that, that story started curdling in my mind, but it was a while back and I had like a couple lines and then I got to about a page long, I think. There's always a spot where that initial interest sort of wanes and you have to figure out exactly what is going to happen next. So I, you know, I had the father and the son and then I sort of added, you know, I was like, what else could be in, in this story that would sort of be more intriguing? 
then I think at first I had the neighbor enter in and like, it was just going to be sort of a story where the two neighbors were sort of, you know, dueling back and forth. But then some, at some point, uh, the neighbor's ex-wife sort of, you know, presented herself. Uh, and then I was like, wait a minute, you know, why, why wouldn't we have this sort of be an interaction? And it was sort of a hard story to write in the sense of plot, just because mm-hmm. there's, there's a little bit of a revelation, which I don't normally like to do uh, in a story. I sort of like to have everything be sort of out in the open. Mm-hmm. Um, but that one sort of, you know, there's a little bit of secretive stuff going on. And that was sort of hard for me to figure out, you know, how much, you know, stuff do I want to reveal here? And, you know, I, I give a couple of clues throughout, I think, that uh, if you look back, you can see that they're, that they're there and this was sort of happening. But that, that was sort of a harder story for me to figure out exactly plot-wise how I was going to reveal this information without, like, making it, you know, just too, you know, shocking or, you know, too bland. Right. Um, it's it's an amazing short story. And on the second read, I saw those, those clues, but it, it works so well, so well. Um, I'm wondering, too, because in each of your short stories, the first sentence hooks the readers just absolutely from the get go. They're they're marvelously made sentences. And then you build on those, too. It, it, It never lets up in a sense. And you also have these amazing endings that feel absolutely inevitable. And I'm thinking about Knockout here, the title um, story, which comes next, which has no, you know, spoiler alert, which has not only a tiger, but a protagonist who's a recovering meth addict and a a friend who they've they've gone through rehab together. And they they actually try to knock each other out with kind of that Spockian pinch. Sure. And that ending really floored me. I just did not see it coming, and yet it was perfect. So I'm wondering if you can talk about your process. You talked about that first sentence and then building on it and plot being really important. Do you know where you're headed, or are those endings as surprising and pleasing for you as a writer as they are for, or as they've been for me as a reader? I mean, that one in particular, like, I didn't really know that one was coming at all. That's a story that I sort of was slaving over for a long time and trying to figure out what would be the right thing to do. And, like, for whatever reason, you know, I I think the father, this is sort of a tendency in my stories, like, there is, you know, that great opening line, and then I'm sort of, like, blindly, you know, trying to find my way, you know, to the next part of the story and that and the next plot point. And for whatever reason, like, I just have a, a problem. Like, I can't move on until I figure out something that exactly works in my mind plot-wise. You know, so you start accruing this information uh, via the plot, and then you're also, like, sort of gathering information with the characters at the same time, because I, you know, I don't have like these sort of character inventories, like, you know, written out or anything. I'm just sort of like trying to figure out what this person would do in a particular circumstance. And with knockout that ending, like, 
I mean, that's probably my favorite one in the book. It ended up sort of coming to me. I'm like, oh, wait, that the father can re sort of re-enter here. And, and he doesn't have a huge role sort of throughout other than a, a couple moments at the beginning. But I, I think he's sort of a well-drawn enough character where like his absence from the story for a while you know, when he sort of re-enters, it's sort of a little bit more dramatic than it maybe would have been if he sort of was there throughout. Yes. I love every story in this collection so much, but that ending, every time, the second time I was wowed, when I went back to it a third, kind of looking at your beginnings and your endings, it is just one of those stories where I just think getting there and landing it, when we talk about your work and the hilarity of it, I mean, there's a there's a level of, uh, absolute where I, I found myself laughing out loud and then as I said feeling a bit uncomfortable about it <laughs> and then and then still though but at the end having these moments of just I don't want to be over the top but I felt a profound connection to the characters in your in your stories and the the, the journeys that they do take and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about walking that tightrope of having these these really interesting complex characters um the book jacket has you know on the fringe of the american dream having these complex characters that we can laugh at and feel like we're watching in a way outside of and yet you bring us so close that we have to recognize them how do you do that yeah i mean i don't know like it's a weird sort of thing i, I think i'm kind of in tune maybe with their humanity. Like I grew up in kind of a small town where like seemingly a lot of bizarre stuff was happening and there were just a lot of characters around. And I think the people, my relatives have this sort of, you know, strange vein where weird things sort of happen to them all the time. So I, I don't know, like it, it, it's not hard for me to sort of imagine these characters in these circumstances you know, a lot of the times my plot is sort of dictating a lot of what the characters do. Uh, so in the end, like, I'm sort of sketching out the plot first and then sort of filling in these details with the characters. And I think one of the things that I always try to do is sort of make my characters a bit sympathetic. In some of the stories, that doesn't really ring true, but having these characters, you know, have the pressure of, you know, these circumstances weighing down on them, I think makes them more humane to a reader. Mm -hmm. And then just in general, when I, when I'm creating a character and like thinking about them, you know, there's usually, there's usually just sort of a space that I'm getting in where I can figure out what, exactly like a character is thinking in a certain circumstance and things like that. I don't know where that comes from exactly, but it's sort of, I know when something is wrong with a character mm -hmm. and I like don't go near that. You know, when a character says a, a line of dialogue that it just feels, you know, clunky or something or not true to them, like I'm able to sort of figure out, like, that's not something that person would say. Um, let's figure out something else that they would say and sort of, navigating things throughout. I mean, it, it's a weird tightrope that I walk that I, I don't know if I can exactly explain to anyone. It's really like, 
when I feel something is right, I go toward that. And when I feel something is wrong, I just cut it out and start doing something different. Can you speak to the importance then of imagination? Because as we're talking about that tightrope, what I truly enjoyed about um, this collection is how deeply imaginative it is while also being grounded in that emotional reality that's devoid of sentimentality. Sure. And, and I'm thinking of particularly alliances and the balloons. And I, I re- when I was reading alliances, I, I was thinking, but I know that can actually happen because that guy in the lawn chair with the balloons, do you, yes. I don't know. Yes. And, <laughs> and so, you know, these things that happen that could give us pause. I'm thinking too of the eagle and the toddler um, in the indoor baby. And yet these are things that like could realistically happen. And so I'm wondering, can you talk about that cultivating imagination, but also thinking in terms of that fictional world, could it happen? Yeah, I mean, like, especially that Donnie Deck Chair, I think that, is that the name of it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that story is largely, like, I saw that movie, and I didn't see the movie, I think I saw the preview or something, I was like, I don't think I need to sit through this, I have a good idea of what's going to happen here. But those are the kinds of things that I sort of gravitate toward in, you know, my reading and my viewing are these sort of bizarre circumstances. And then, you know, there'll be something, you know, like the the eagles picking up the baby. Like, that ended up occurring just for the fact that, like, I had my, the person that cuts my hair was, like, she was in Montana with her RV. And, you know, she's just like, I got to watch the you know my dogs all the time i have these tiny little dogs that like if you let them outside and you know an eagle or a hawk will just like swoop down and grab them and you know so in my imagination i was automatically like well could they pick up a baby and so those are the kinds of things where i am able to sort of figure out okay you know i have these little nuggets and then i sort of tweak them toward you know a little more uh weird and sort of wild uh things within within my stories i was thinking as you were talking about um indoor baby which is so deeply resonant and i admire the way that you use not only the setting of the space the the um, First-person narrator is agoraphobic, but the way that you use the space of her body that she inhabits and the space of having to be a caretaker kind of twofold, right? Having a life that's defined by taking care um, sure. in a big way. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about how you think about setting and how setting, because you've talked about plot and characterization, coming to know your characters. Um, can you talk about the importance of setting in your story? And I'm also, as I'm ta- listening to myself talk, um, thinking about duplex, which also um, is is wonderfully, it wonderfully uses um, setting. And Lily and Annabelle, too. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, I would say, you know, a lot of the, the plot and character come from imagination, but the setting usually is something that's pretty grounded in my head. Like, for duplex, you know, I, you know, I lived in a rooming house, and so, like, I would just think sort of about, you know, the space in there and the different roommates and things, how that interacted, you know, how they interacted with each other. You know, I guess setting is probably the one thing that, like, is most grounded in reality for me in some way, like, in my, you know, past. Like, I'll just pull, like, if I need to have a post office or something Mm -hmm. in a story, like, the post office that I go to in my mind is the post office that I grew up, you know, with. Um, For a lot of the stories, I think the setting is something that it's not hard for me to like just pull things from real life with that. And for whatever reason, like I'm, I'm still grounded within, you know, the places that I grew up and, you know, places that I visited and things like that. So setting usually is pulled directly from my life. Whereas the other stuff is sort of like, none of those things have ever happened to me in real life, you know, right. But the setting portion of it, like, it gives me, I think, a good base for, you know, to sort of explore and push boundaries when I have that, the brickwork already built with the setting and and in my stories. Well, how about then, like, the setting of our mom and pop opium den? Because because as I'm reading, I'm thinking, I've never been in opium den, but I bet a mom and pop's opium den would absolutely look like that. You know, yeah, that, I mean, that is another thing. Like I, now that we're talking, I, I, I'm realizing how much stuff I sort of like am inspired by movies. There's a movie called Once Upon a Time in America. Robert De Niro's in it. And he like I, I for some reason it was on TV when I was about 10 years old or something. And I watched it and I was probably. You know, I don't think my parents were around at that point. So my TV viewing may have steered or slid into something a little bit uh, too too old for my age group then. But I was watching this uh, Robert De Niro and he was in an opium den and he was just, you know, constantly like dreaming about like, I think his dead wife or something like that. He couldn't sort of get over that. And I just like mesmerized while watching this. And like, I, when I started writing that story, I was like, Oh yeah. You know, it first started out sort of as a, you know, all of the hardware stores in my town, like all of the mom and pop ones are sort of getting closing down because of home Depot. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of was like, Oh, I want to try to tweak this. And, you know, it was like, what is a scenario that would be really strange, you know, where this big box opium den is coming in and, you know, sort of, you know, taking over all the turf from the the mom and pop ones. And the then once I started getting into that, then I was like, wait a minute, there's this Robert De Niro thing. And then, you know, I, I think that sort of informed my the setting in that one. Um you know, and then I think for that one, I sort of did, you know, I don't have a lot of opium den experience. So, like, <laughs> I pretty much was like, 
oh, I'm just going to look at some old pictures here and see what things are sort of looking like to get a better sense of it. I that story, the ending slays me. It's it's just so beautifully done because it while it's about the mom and pop opium den, what I what I do so um, admire, John, about your work is just the layers in these stories and um, the relationship between um, the first person narrator and the father and what's really happening there um, is is just delightful. That last image, you you have um, a way with with really striking imagery. I'm thinking um, not just of this one, but the ending to an indoor baby, uh, just just so resonant. These are stories that really stayed with me. I'm wondering though, because you talked a little bit about what you watch um, and how some of those things influence you. What what are you watching currently? Anything in terms of popular culture? Well, I have just started Stranger Things. I'm on episode two now, so that I, I've been watching that. Um, what else did we just f- finish up? A lot of Olympics lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's sort of been the TV watching. Um, before that, like Game of Thrones, like I, I tend to watch a lot of the you know things that other people are watching in the end. How about music? Do you do you write in silence? Do you use music? Um, I'm teaching a a novel this semester and. Um, in my basic writing class, and, and Rainbow Row has soundtracks for her characters and playlists. And I'm wondering, do you use music at all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're especially, you know, part of my sort of ritual, I think, is trying to figure out the exact music that needs to be on for me to actually get motivated enough to write, um, which, you know, is a process which usually takes about half hour and 45 minutes of me sort of clicking around and then sort of, you know, starting to write and then being like, that's the wrong music that doesn't work for this story or, you know, need something that doesn't have words today because I'm having trouble concentrating or something. You know, largely I listen to sort of classical-esque instrumental sort of electronic stuff like Max Richter, um, Nils Fromm, like a lot of piano based things that sort of you can have on in the background that have like some sort of driving beat to them that aren't just sort of, you know, fluffy in there. Um, so yeah, I mean, music is a large influence on what I'm doing. And, you know, if I need a particular, you know, mood to strike a particular mood, I will put on something that sort of, you know, encapsulates that mood for a story or something like that where you know i need something a little more aggressive and you know the characters doing something in a scene which i try i try to end up matching that music with what's going on in the story so how do you remain motivated i mean you've had three really wonderful collections out in in a relatively short span of time and I'm wondering, as a writer, how how you do keep that motivation up, how you find that balance, if there even is a balance, um, in terms of having a rich, full life and a rich, full writing life. Yeah, I mean, it's been, like, it's always sort of a little bit harder when you finish a book, like, and this one's been done for a while, but I, it takes me a while to sort of get back into it, 
and it's really sort of seasonal mm-hmm. in some way. Like I live in cold hell during the winter, and that tends to be when I do most of my writing. Uh, it's really hard here in the summertime to get like motivated to sit down when I, I know that winter is coming here, and like if I don't, you know, enjoy it. Um, it's going to enjoy the summer. Everything is going to sort of, um, I, I'm not going to have those fond memories. I'm just going to have winter and rainstorms and things like that. So it, it motive, keeping motivated, you know, it, if I have a deadline that sort of ends up helping me out lately, you know, it, the late, lately the stories, what, what ends up happening to me is, you know, I tend to finish a lot of stories at the same time. So, uh, you know, I, I'm just moving through these stories and I, I sort of pick up one and drop the other one off for a while and work on one for a couple of weeks and then slowly and inc- incrementally things move forward. But then like I end up finishing a lot of stuff at the same time, but until I arrive to that point, it sort of is, it's kind of hard to get motivated. When, when I can see the end of a story, uh, things start, you know, getting a little bit more exciting for me, but sort of finding my way through a bunch of different stories is a little bit daunting. And that's sort of where I am right now. <laughs> so what would you say? I, I, I think I read in an interview and I would please do correct me if I'm wrong that, the writing that you're doing has to be entertaining to you as a writer and to some extent fun. And that when you're bored with the piece, you know that it's, it's really close to being finished if not done or ready to be sent out. Is that, is that fairly accurate? Yeah. I mean, the, the entertaining part, like I, you know, this is something that I'm doing to have fun. Like it is a, a, a difficult thing to do sometimes and not, it, it's not always fun, but like, you know, allegedly I'm trying to do this to have fun. Keeping motivated with stories for me is always sort of a, a thing where um, it, it's kind of a bit of a difficult thing, but I, I'm totally, I just flaked on your question. What was it again? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're spot on. Do okay. you primarily, let me, maybe I could just rephrase this. Do you primarily write to entertain yourself or are oh, you yeah. also consciously thinking about a readership or an audience that also has to be entertained? I mean, I totally think about my audience. I think there's people who are able to, you know, just be writing for themselves, but the stuff that I read, I think is sort of entertaining and humorous. Like I, I want to make sure that, I'm giving people sort of an entertaining read. I don't, you know, want people to be like, why did I get this book? Like it's, it's, you know, hard to read and put it down after, you know, 20 minutes. I, that's not the reading experience I'm looking for. And I don't want to give my reader that, you know, experience either. Um, so like, And what I'm hopefully trying to do is, like, while I'm writing, I'm trying to entertain myself, and I'm, you know, making sure that the reader is getting some of that entertainment out of it, too. Have you always found that that enjoyment in writing? Or do you remember when that, when you were like, hey, yeah, this writing thing? Well, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I remember 
my my origin story is sort of I, when I was in about sixth grade, I had a teacher assign me uh, or assign our class um, a story to write. Uh, and it was about we had these readers that were these reading books that were had included this guy named Freddie Applegate, who was sort of a goody two shoes. And our teacher was like, okay, we're all sick of these Freddie Applegate stories where everything goes right for him. And, you know, he's a goody two shoes showing the world like what, you know, morally is correct to do in each situation. And so she was like, let's imagine, you know, that Freddie Applegate has some trouble and, or, or, you know, everything doesn't go right in his life. What would happen then? And so I started imagining Things and you know, I was in sixth grade, and I had Freddie Applegate going to prison, <laughs> and he ended up like trying to you know commit suicide or something. I don't even remember. Like he was trying to strangle himself with his shoelaces or something in prison, and I don't know where I would have gotten that probably from watching TV that I wasn't supposed to be watching. But the the entire class was like read him aloud, and the entire class you know. Loved it, and I was just like, ah, ah, ah. Um, <laughs> and so and I was like, "All right, this is cool to be able to, you know, entertain people through a story." And throughout sort of high school and into college, that always sort of remained in my head that I should be doing this. And you know, I didn't really when I was in high school, I didn't do much writing. And you know, when I started in college, I was doing a bunch of different things other than writing. And at some point I just realized that I should probably be doing this and this is what I'm good at. And this is what people are sort of, you know, people react to the things that I write pretty well. So I should probably sort of focus on this instead of any of the other stuff. Has, has that sense of humor always been kind of innate with you, John? Like it sounds that even as a child, you were, you were, hilarious and interesting your writing was but is that something that you've had to continually cultivate and work on or do you find it comes really naturally to you in your your work to be honest like I, when i was growing up yeah i thought i i think i was a i think i was kind of a funny kid and do write you know i've written a number of sort of funny pieces for like mcsweeney's and things like that um, that are just sort of short off one, you know, 500 word sort of jokey pieces and things like that. You know, I feel like I'm sort of in some way a failed stand-up comedian. Like I would have been a horrible stand-up comedian. I just don't have the, you know, stage presence, I, I don't think, and probably um, would be horrible at trying to remember jokes and those kinds of things. So this was sort of my way to have people think that I'm funny without having to do like stand-up comedy. So like it's, it's a really important thing to me to have, you know, that comedic ballast in, in my stories. You know, I, I think there's a lot of writers out in the world that are just like, everything is just way too serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's just like, oh, okay, you know, and and there's a place for that. Like, I read a lot of stuff that's just, like, straight serious without, like, any sort of comedic stuff in there, but my favorite writers are people that are able to sort of mix, you know, 
comedy and tragedy and, you know, create some sort of poignant universe uh, that, you know, encompasses all of those things, which I think, you know, sort of life is really like. Uh, there's like, you know, there's, it's not all one or the other thing. There's just sort of this mix of stuff. And that's, that's what I'm trying to strike at, you know, when I'm writing. So who are your favorite authors currently who are doing these things, as you said, that you see them doing, doing them well, because that duality of, of when it, when it is supposed to be that kind of dark underbelly and still having the humor that's there too. Who do you see doing that really beautifully now? I mean, obviously like my favorite writer ever is George Saunders. Um, and like, he is just world-class at figuring out how to like, you know, all of his stuff is so, so nuanced and layered and funny. Yes. Yes. Um, and like, I, I just, you know, I am such a fanboy of his, um, I, you know, I, there's a couple of writers, like one who's sort of polarizing, like I think Miranda July is awesome. Yes. You know, Amy Bender, mm-hmm. uh, especially her early short stories, like had that sort of humor and, you know, poignancy in there. Uh, a, a novel that I read uh, probably about half a year ago is sort of sticking with me. Um, the, the book by Catherine Lacey. Uh, that novel, uh, what is it called? Um, can't remember the title, but, um, that's a great book. Um, I just finished reading, uh, Maurice Meyer's Heartbreaker, which you haven't, if you haven't checked that out, that's sort of, it's not really funny, but it's pretty stark and it, it has some humor like in the starkness. Um, Whenever I get this question, I was blank on it. But those are some. No, of those the- are great. Okay. And and what is it? What is it like, John, to be compared to George Saunders? Does it rock as hard as it seems like it would? Yeah, it's a great thing. Like I, anytime I can be mentioned in a sentence with him, I, I obviously love that. And um, and honestly, in reading this, uh, he came to mind because tenth of December. I mean, and I, and I love Civil War Land. I mean, I, everything yeah. he's ever written, I love. But um, I, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, he definitely, he definitely came to mind. But um, your voice is is distinctly different as well. Um, but that mix of humor, it's really hard. It's it's difficult. And I I have my students do an exercise trying to cultivate this idea that it can be both. You know, it can. It can definitely be both. Um, can you talk just very briefly about, I know you you said you start with that first sentence and plot is really important and often a way of coming to know your characters, but what is your writing process as a whole in terms of drafting and revision? Well, I mean, I would say that probably, you know, the drafting is probably 10% of the stuff and the revision is ends up being about 90%. And, you know, largely... You know, I I think, you know, this is something that I've read is sort of a quality of a perfectionist where I'm constantly sort of rewriting the, you know, I'll write that first sentence and then I'll go back and edit it and then I'll sort of, you know, write another sentence and be like, yeah, does that work okay? And then I'm editing that one around and then like slowly, you know, it will accrue into something bigger. 
Um, you know, so by the time I arrive at the end of a story, it ends up being pretty revised. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. there, there's a, you know, at least language wise there, you know, there's always something clunky that I'll have to go back and, you know, figure out, but I'm not a writer who is just like, I'm going to write this first draft. Um, and it's going to be a complete draft. Like it's usually like I write like a page of a story and then it sits there for about six months until I figure out like what happens next. Um, what could this character do? And those are a lot, you know, that's a ton of what I do is just like sitting there figuring out what's going to happen. And usually something will present itself like either from the world or, you know, I'll read something and, you know, that will, you know, spur me to be like, oh, that, that seems like something this character in this story might do. Um, and then sort of moving on from that or else like I'll take, a couple of different stories and sort of like when something really isn't working and I'll just like mash them together and see what sort of comes out of that. Um, or, you know, just an old tried and true rule is if you ever get stuck is just to add a new character in there and see what happens. Um, the, you know, my revision process, like it, it's pretty tedious. My writing process overall is pretty tedious. I don't really want to wish it on anybody else. Um, it takes a really long time. But I, you're, wish, I wish I was a person who would just be like, I can, you know, this thing has been in my head for a while and I'm going to now write a draft of it and it will be a complete draft. Like that's never, ever happened to me. But that attention, though, to detail and that line by line, I, I know it, it, it must be brutal for you, but I, I have to say thank you because I was telling um, a former student of mine who actually sent me your collection, like, you bring home to me in such a big way how important, like, every narrative unit matters. Like, the word choice, the the, the sentence, then building on the next sentence, um, that the accumulated effect is one of just, it, it's a it's amazing. So uh, wow. no, you're welcome. It's, it really is like, I'm looking at someday, all of this will probably be yours. And it just, when I look at that story with the wedding party right next to it, two so distinctly different, um, characters, right. And yet the beauty just of these stories as made things without feeling made, does that make sense? Sure. You know, um, I just, I just commend you on it. Definitely. You. I mean, yeah. like, that's, so that's what I'm hoping to do is like make these things like not seem like they are, they've been like toiled over a long time, but like, no, just, like, no. Mm -hmm. you like are, that's there. You can see the sort of yes. craftsmanship. You, you are successful. Thank absolutely. You. <laughs> in that. And they're, they are just, um, absolutely beautiful. Um, so one last thing that I'd like to talk about is you really do seem to value collaboration and community and live readings as events that bring people together and where those who come are really getting an experience. Can you talk a little bit about Minneapolis and the thriving writing scene that's going on there and why it's important to seek out and be part of a larger community of writers? I think this you know, the writing life is pretty hard in, you know, you're toiling alone, 
at your computer. You don't have a lot of outside, you know, friends that are maybe doing the same thing. Like when I, you know, a couple of years ago when my book, my first book came out, I was like, I need to sort of connect to people in that community a lot more. And, you know, Minneapolis is, I think, sort of unique in there's a, a ton of writers here. Um, it's a place where it's you're able to sort of live very cheaply, um, and there's a lot of creative things going on. It's big enough to support a lot of different kind of arts and artists. Uh, you know, the community of writers here, it's when I reached, you know, I sort of starting out, like, it's very accepting of new people. Like they, you know, everybody sort of wants to know what you got going on. Um, and I found it just to be really, really supportive. Uh, the, the live events, like you can get, you know, a really great crowd, you know, and people are very supportive of coming out to things that, that, that are good. So the, I've tried to program things that people will like and, you know, the couple of partnerships that I've had um, with, with my publishers, the first two were local. So, you know, and they, they had a, an idea of like how we should do things. And we, we, we had a great partnership, especially with paper darts um, who sort of, you know, the, in the last couple of years has, you know, sort of, broadened what you could really do with uh, uh, a journal uh, in the literary journal world. So it, it's been a great thing. Um, and, you know, I'm organizing this reading in town right now that I'm very excited about. So, you know, it, it just continues going and you meet new people. And that's always great for your writing as well if you're getting like sort of new perspectives and hearing new people and what about what they're doing. So that's a great thing. So that's wonderful. I know, um, I thought that I saw somewhere too. Do you do prison literacy work too, John? Or workshops? Uh, yeah, that was, that was something I was lucky enough. I got invited to do, uh, about probably six months ago, um, to go teach a couple of classes in, um, the Stillwater prison in Minnesota. So, that that's a group that is doing great work. Uh, I got, I was lucky enough to do like a couple classes with them. So yeah, it's, it was really fun. And like the guys that were writing in there had great stories to tell. Um, it, it was pretty great to hear them for, you know, a couple nights and, you know, they had a reading where, you know, some people from the prison got to come and hang out and hear their, hear their stuff. And it, it, it was really fun to do. John, were there any organizations or mentors that were particularly helpful in assisting you in in finding ways to tell the stories that you wanted to write? Yeah, I mean, that's one thing I forgot to mention probably with the community part, portion of this. The Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis is a, a great resource. Like, I, you know, I don't have my MFA but I was involved, you know, I, I took classes in undergrad at the University of Minnesota. And then, you know, I was not ready to be doing any sort of publishing or even, you know, sending anything out at that point. But I continued to sort of take classes at the Loft Literary Center from some really great teachers in Minneapolis. And then after that, they have, you know, sort of a 
grant funding arm. Um, so there are some grants available through them. And, you know, I won the mentor series, which I sort of can, can consider my MFA, um, which, you know, ended up being put in a cohort with like 12 other writers and having visiting writers coming in, you know, once a month, um, to, to share their perspectives. And like that was the Loft Literary Center has been, you know, sort of by my side throughout this whole endeavor, um, and like, I don't really know where I would have been if I would have been in a town where there wasn't just, you know, lots of resources for me to capitalize on. That's it sounds like a wonderful organization. It is. Yeah. Yep. Um, so before we conclude today, I wondered if I could put you on the spot and ask if you have top five favorite books of all time that you think the world should read that you could share with our listeners. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, or even top three, John, I'd oh, yeah, go with even three. Yeah. Let's, I'm having the book amnesia already here. Um, I would say like the 10th of December is on my list for sure. And then Amy Bender's girl with the flammable skirt is on there. Yes. And then, um, I, you know, am a huge fan of Dennis Johnson's Jesus, a son. Yes. Like, I, I think those are pre- three pretty, like, standard responses for a short story writer. Um, like, especially, you know, of my age where, like, those are the things that I really cut my teeth reading. You know, I'm a big fan of David, David Sedaris. Uh, and if you haven't checked out those books, like, oh. especially... You know, I read, I remember reading Barrel Fever, you know, I I probably have read that book like, you know, 10 or 12 times and just being like, oh, okay, somebody has finally given me a license to like be funny while writing. Um, And and so those are the kinds of things like you actually see someone, you know, doing something that you're like, oh, I hadn't realized that I could do this. Uh, those are the kinds of books that have sort of inspired me to like do the thing that I'm doing. That's awesome. I know that you, you said that you've watched one episode of stranger things and I just got to check in how you, how are you feeling about Winona Ryder's um, performance as the mom? It's pretty harrowing. Like I, you know, I, I just, you know, I have a five year old kid. So there's like, sort of resonates anytime a kid would sort of get lost. I just can't really even imagine. I mean, I, I've, you know, the, the limited amount I've seen, like she's, I think she does a great job. Um, like, you know, I, I've always been a fan of hers. So Winona I, forever. So, yes. Yeah, I'm hoping that this is sort of a, you know, a bit of a renaissance where she starts getting some more parts like, um, I mean, she's been doing a lot of stuff around lately, so I, I think things are on the upward tick for her. Absolutely. And Dustin, Dustin, the chocolate pudding, curly haired. Yes. Isn't he the cutest? Yeah. He is. I know. <laughs> oh, John, I, I want to thank you so much, not only for your time and your talents, but your work um, and this extraordinary collection of short stories. Um I, I want to know, too, before we close and conclude today, what are you up to? I know you referenced a novel. Where are you reading next? How can our listeners find you and find your work? Um, I, yes, the novel, you know, I've probably, 
got about 50 pages of it, you know, done. That's in air quotes. Um, so I'm sort of just figuring out still like moving along slowly with that. The, you know, I, I haven't ever done that before. So I'm trying to sort of figure out how I can write it in a way that I understand, which may be sort of connected short stories that are very loosely connected. So that's, that's sort of what I'm working on right now. And then, you know, I'll randomly just like kick back into a short story when I want a little break from the, the novel. Um, I'm reading next. I, I got a nice grant here to go on sort of a nationwide tour here in the fall. So I got some dates in Chicago, San Francisco, Portland, um, Austin, Texas. So I'll, I'll be around uh, in some some towns here shortly. Wonderful. Uh, yep. And we can find you on Facebook? On Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, yep. Can you give us a little taste of what the what the novel is about, or is it top secret? Um, it's not top secret. There's um, it, it's sort of a lot of different things right now. The it, the title tentatively of it is called Braille Face. Um, so there's there's a lot of sort of weird hijinks. I, I guess I'll leave it at that. I don't, I don't know want to like, you know, jinx myself and have something, you know, out on the internet where I like, right. actually like, Oh, this is what it's going to be about. Cause like, it's really shifting sands right now. But I think, you know, there's a lot of javelin stuff in it right now. For some reason, there's a lot of, there's a big drug sort of smuggling plot happening right now. So those are two of the major things I'm working with. Is the process of writing a novel more like marathon work? Like, do you find that it's requiring a level of endurance that the short story writing doesn't? I yeah. Mean, has it made you think of the short story writing process differently, too? Yeah, not so much. Like, the short story writing, like, I, if I compare both of those two, like, it's just... The novel, I guess, to me, is just, like, sort of a daunting thing in a couple of different ways. Like, number one, just, like, the sheer amount of writing that you need to do. And then, you know, there's that part of it. And, you know, then there's, like, if I make a mistake, like, how do I correct this? Like, I know how to sort of get in and out of a short story or, like, I can quit on a short story if it's not working and then go back to it later. But like a novel, it just sort of feels more daunting to me because like if I take a wrong turn somewhere, mm. continue to go on that wrong turn for a hundred pages. And then I was like, what? Um, and I, I'm guessing like every novelist already knows this fact, but like it hadn't really you know occurred to me as of yet. So like, that's the sort of thing where I'm just like, I have to get my, you know, I have to sort of screw up my confidence to like really get motivated to do it and be like, this will be okay. I'll, you know, everything will work out. I'll just keep working my way through it. If I have to delete a hundred pages, so be it. Well, John, thank you so much. Again, it's, we were lucky enough to have John Jodzio today with us um, discussing his 
amazing book, Knockout. It's 2016 from Soft Skull Press. I encourage everybody to go out, pick it up immediately. You won't be able to put it down. Thank you, John. Thank you so much.